As you're seated, please open to 1 Peter chapter 4. As we finish out chapter 4 of 1 Peter, and we near the end of 1 Peter, we're uh, excited for what the Lord has for us here in 1 Peter and what the Lord has for us afterward. I won't tell you yet what that will be, but uh, Lord willing, that'll be a blessing to all of us as this has been. 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter and hopefully cover all of it before dinner. Some of you are listening still. We won't go that long. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the truth the hope, the love that is here for us. God, I pray that as we study it, Lord, that you would uh, work through the words that I speak, Lord, that you would overcome my words, that your words would be the front and center in our minds. Lord, that you would be glorified. We ask this impossible task only as you can do it for your name's sake, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, would you agree that knowing God, pursuing God, knowing who God is, learning about Him is the most important thing you can do with your life? That's the most important thing. You know, that's the reason that Jesus created humanity to begin with. More specifically, it's the reason He created you and me. He made you with specifics in mind for what it will look like. There are some of us who are more athletic than others, some of us who are smarter than others, Those who are smarter than others may be smart enough not to say that to others, (laughs) Lord willing, hopefully, right? Um, I'm not one of those (laughs) that would be smarter than others, but praise God, He's made us all the way that we are with our specific personalities and traits and characteristics to live, to know Him, to glorify Him in different, unique ways. Um, You know, that's what He is meant for us to be and to do. That's what he gave us gifts for. That's how we ended last week in verse 11, right? All for the glory of God. Now, in the end, all of the ways that we have been able to come around one another and go out into the world to glorify God must be dictated by his truth, the truth of what God says. And we all praise him and worship him for the same things. None of us should be praising God for things that are wrong, right? Um, don't, don't thank God or praise God for things that are not true. Uh, don't try to enjoy God because of his marvelous beginning that he had. 
because God had no beginning, right? He's, a, he's an eternal God. He had no beginning and no end. We, we can't really comprehend that. We don't really understand fully what that means, um, but we glorify him for it. And one of the things I thought about was, you know, we say that word glorify him a lot. We say that, you know, all for the glory of God and we're going to glorify him for this and that. What do we mean by that? That we glorify God. Well, it starts by acknowledging him in our minds, our hearts, and then produces action like singing praises, like praying to him, like verbally acknowledging his greatness, his eternality. Have you ever said that? God, I praise you that you are eternal. I mean, aside from a song that we sing. Have you, have you ever told somebody, you know, God is so amazing, he, he lasts forever. He had no beginning and no end. That's glorifying God for his eternality, his alpha and omega beginning and end and living forever. So it, it's something that goes into our mind. It sinks deep into our hearts so that we don't just say it and we don't just speak it or sing it or pray it or tell other people about it, but we live out in light of the truth of God, who he is, and that particular truth, there could be a whole message just living out the acknowledgement that God is eternal. You say, how? how? What would that look like? Well, trusting him with eternity, that's what we do at salvation, right? Uh, God, I trust you with all of my eternity because you're eternal. You have been there all along. I trust you with how everything was created, what nature looks like, and the, the reason for it is there because you were there and you made it because you're eternal. You... It looks like uh, acknowledging him in every area of my life so that I don't even worry about when things happen because he exists outside of time. And so I don't have to fret about when things are supposed to happen, when they might happen, because God's going to do it at the right time, every time, because that's who he is in, in his eternality. And so we give God glory for his being, having no beginning and having no end by trusting him with all of those things in our hearts and in our minds and living out that truth. Now, a lot of times, we don't do that very well, do we? we? We take what God's given us, what should propel us into knowing him more, and we direct it into what I want, right? What, what I want to do, what, what pleases me instead of what pleases God. Instead of getting to know God, we get to know ourselves, and we encourage others to get to know themselves, and then somehow, all of us being focused on ourselves is supposed to produce peace and happiness, and then we get confused when it doesn't, right? Uh, when we follow that advice. So getting to know God is important. It's the most important thing we can do with our life, getting to know who this God is. But there's something more important than even knowing who God is. There's something more important, more fundamental, more, more crucial to our existence in eternity than, than us knowing God, and that is God knowing us. See, we can do something about Knowing God, we can study Him, we can see His attributes and creation, His nature all around us, and more reliably and specifically, we can learn more about God in His Word, but we can't do anything about whether God knows us. That's something He does on His own. Just as we are people and persons to Him, He is a person, He's a real person who will have to get to know us. Now, in one sense of the word, God knows you. He knows you better than you do, right? There's everything about, there, about you that there is to know about you, God already knows. God knows everything about you because he made you. Everything about you, he created you, he formed you. He knows about how your right leg is shorter than your left leg. He knows about your crooked nose. 
or smile. He knows how uncoordinated, uncoordinated you are, <laughs> how you might stutter or stumble when you speak. He knows how athletic and coordinated you are and how you would have been a professional athlete if not for that injury, right? <laughs> he knew about that injury before you did, though. He knows about our thoughts. He knows what you would think. He knows the feelings that you will feel. He knows the dreams that you dream. He not only knows every single hair on your head, he knows what's going on inside your head, right? No mind is hidden from God. No heart is closed to God. Not only does he see them and hear them as we think them and feel them, he knew about them long before we ever did. And if you want a refresher on that, see Psalm 139. This is true of every single human being on the planet. God knows you. It's true about every single atom in all of creation. God knows every, every particle, the smallest particle in the farthest star that's burning up to the smallest little particle in the molten center of the earth. Far away and close at hand, God knows every single thing all of the time. He's actively involved. He knows it all. In that sense, God knows you. He knows me. He knows every single person. Person, There's nothing left out. But in a relational sense, God does not know everyone. Not everyone has a relationship with God. A personal, experiential, knowing Him, like, like two people on good terms, <laughs> like, like two people in a relationship. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 7 that many will enter the wide gate with the easy way that leads to destruction while there are few who will enter the narrow gate with the hard way that leads to life. So it's not just that not everybody knows God. Many people don't know God. And for many people, God doesn't know them in that relationship sense. Yes, he knows everything about everybody, but he also knows that many people will continue their rejection of him for their entire life. And even though he's good to them, he's gracious to them for their entire life, to all of us, some people, many people, Jesus said, will refuse him and still live in their sin, and when they die, there will be no more grace or mercy for them. They'll live forever under his wrath. Those are the people that God does not know relationally, in, in that relationship sense. Here's the consequence of that. Jesus says just a few verses later after that in Matthew 7, that many will say to him, Lord, Lord. They'll know something about God. They'll, they'll know something about who Jesus is. Enough to acknowledge him as the sovereign master over everything. Like we said, he's the one who created everything, the one who's eternal, right? That they know that he will be, he's Lord, that he's, he's in charge, he's the master. They'll know about that. They'll, they'll even act on what they know about that. They'll prophesy in his name. They'll cast out demons in his name. They'll do mighty, many mighty works. They will know some things about God, but God will not know them. That's what Jesus says. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus doesn't say, depart from me because you never knew me. He'll say, depart from me because I never knew you. So the determining factor there was not how much did you know about God, how good was your theology, how did you act out what you knew, how well did you live it out, it was whether God knew them. Now, none of us is fully able to comprehend God and all of his ways, his nature. <laughs> it's whether he knows us in that personal relational sense. So how do we get that relationship where God knows us? 
Because we, we need to be living so that we know who God is, and we need, that's our purpose in life, to glorify Him, to know Him, and, and to live that out. How do we get to the place where God knows us? Well, because of our sin, there is nothing we can do to make ourselves attractive to God. We can't convince Him that it would be good for Him to get to know us personally. <laughs> There's no way to convince God of that. We have nothing that we can give we, we, we can't do anything because of our sin to make God become friends with us. Anything we could ever give Him, He already owns, right? Besides, He's eternal. What need does He have of anything temporary that we could give Him? So how does it happen? How can we come to know God in a way that He would come to know us? There is no way for us to do that apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ knows his Father, and his Father knows him. And when a person turns away from himself or herself to Jesus, the Son of God, in love and admiration in worship, Jesus brings us together with his Father and brings him together with us. He's the mediator, the one that brings us together with God. He's the one that, that enables this impossible relationship between us and God. He's the one who mediates between us and the Father. His own blood washes away our sins. He covers them with forgiveness. His blood removes God's wrath from us and propitiation. His atonement makes amends and brings peace between us and God so that not only can we become people who are in relationship with God so that we know Him, so that He knows us in a relationship sense. What an amazing thing that Jesus did. He did so much on the cross. And see, that's why Paul was so surprised with the Galatians in Galatians 4.8 when they were turning away from God. He said, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But he says, but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, he makes that important point, that distinction. Rather to be known by God, how can you then turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. See, you and I, brother and sister, have come to know God in a new and real way personally through Jesus. And He has come to know us. We're friends now with God. I mean, He's still the Almighty Holy One that we can't just, you know, what's up, buddy? You know, God's my homeboy or Jesus is my homeboy. No, we're not doing that. But we are friends of God now, not enemies. If you have come to know God through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that impossible relationship is now a reality for you and for me. God has come to know you in a personal way. And so now we begin to live life the way that God intended, to know Him more, to get to know more of who He is. We don't just come to learn about Him, we learn, to, we, we learn Him. Because learning things only puffs up, Right? You know, the more that we learn, kind of the more filled with pride we get. But learning God personally is the height of existence for a human being. It's true love when we love Him, and He loved us, and we love Him because He loved us. And that's what Paul gets across in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, I, I know that food offered to idols is nothing because idols are nothing. And so I trample all over Christians who aren't so firm in their knowledge this way, right? That's what Paul says. No, we know better. He says this knowledge that we can have, knowledge knowing things and growing our minds uh, rather than applying what we know, just knowing all that stuff is 
fully capable of pumping us up with pride. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, Paul says. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. That's what Paul says. When we love the Lord through Jesus Christ, he knows us. If God doesn't know you, you're here this morning and you don't know what I'm talking about. You have not experienced that. You need to be willing to give up anything and everything to come to him through Jesus Christ. We want to help you with that. We say it often. You know, we, we want to be here for you. We want to introduce you to him. We want to bring you to him. We want to help you get to know him. This personal relationship with the almighty sovereign God of the universe. We don't want you to leave until that happens, until that's true of you. If that doesn't describe you, don't leave. Don't just say, well, I'm kind of hungry. I'd rather go to lunch. You know, we'll, we'll give you a snack. <laughs> this is the most important thing we can do with our life. Jesus is the escape from God's wrath to his glory. He's the entry to peace and joy that you would never know on your own. Don't leave without getting to know God through Jesus so that he comes to know you. So we've gone through all of that for your sake if you don't know the Lord God. But we've also gone through that for our sake who do know him, or rather that are known by him, because this impossible relationship, this truth is, the, is what undergirds and permeates this passage in 1 Peter 4. As Peter's been teaching us about suffering, we've learned so much helpful and instructive truth, but it's the fact that God knows us and loves us that any of this matters and applies to us. And Peter here is going to summarize everything we've learned in this letter about suffering in just a few verses. And it wouldn't be so helpful to us if we hadn't gone through 1 Peter and gotten the close-up view of every section, every piece and part, so that now it's summarizing. You know, we're, we're kind of taking a step back from the painting. We've seen the brush strokes here and the brush strokes there, and now we take a step back and we see the whole painting in this passage, and we go, wow, this is amazing what God is doing. Because you know God and because he knows you, brother or sister, you will be able to suffer rightly. I know that doesn't sound like good news, but it is good news that we're going to be able to suffer rightly because we know already we're going to suffer. But Jesus is teaching us through his word, through Peter, how to suffer rightly rather than complaining. There are a lot of people that complain about life, a lot of people that complain about how hard things are and suffering. But he cares for us during suffering. He loves us. He wants us to suffer rightly so that he will be glorified. So there are four parts to this summary of how to suffer as a Christian. The first one that we're going to look at in verses 12 and 13 is that for us to suffer rightly, we need to accept the proposition. Accept this proposition. Because Peter makes a proposition, a truth claim about life in verses 12 and 13. One thing you can't say about the Bible is that it ignores real life. You know, sometimes we might do a bad job of that. You know, good morning, how are you? Good, great, thanks, how are you? Good, thanks. <laughs> you know, we, we might kind of push real life out, but the Bible doesn't do that. God doesn't do that in his word. He addresses real life with the truth. So as Peter gives us this information, he makes an assertion about life, he's not going to avoid the reality of the struggles and the difficulties in suffering. He's going to aim it directly at us by addressing, asserting, assuring, and acting. So A, in our notes, verse 12, let's look at the address. The address. Who does he address this to? He says, beloved. Beloved. 
as Peter's about to give some bold truth, he's not going to soften it, but he approaches it with love. The whole thing's going to be encompassed with love. How are they beloved? Because God loves them, right? Because they love God, because God loves them, and because Peter loves them. You remember who Peter was? The macho man fisherman, you know, the, the tough guy, the, the hard-nosed macho man fisherman. He's been transformed by God into someone who loves other people. They are beloved by God and by his apostles. So this, this propositional truth claim about life is covered with love. That starts with his address. B, next, verse 12. Let's look at his assertion. The assertion itself. He says, a fiery trial will come. Now, if you've been studying First Peter with us, this is not a surprise, right? This is not new information here, <laughs> that, that, a, that a difficult time is coming. Trouble, persecution, affliction of all kinds, suffering. But you knew that even if you've been alive for more than five minutes, right? You knew that life wasn't going to be just a big bowl of cherries. Well, maybe, a, you know, some tart ones and some rough ones and some bad ones and some good ones. It, it, we know it's not going to be easy, right? Life's not going to be easy. Specifically in First Peter, though, the focus has been on suffering for our faith. Words that are thrown against us, deeds that happen to us because of our faith in Jesus Christ. That's been his focus. But as we've talked about, the answers for how to endure that are the same no matter what kind of suffering come. So he, he gets real about the kind of sufferings that will come. He, he calls it a fiery trial. Fiery, it's a burning as in a severe suffering. It's used for refining and testing metals for purity. And so Peter's not saying, you know, don't be surprised when some kind of tough things happen once in a while, right? He's not sugarcoating the truth. There's a fiery trial coming. There's no belittling this. And this is what I mean by the Bible not hiding reality from us and, and God not trying to, to dance around the bush with this. It's true love again because he's, he's identifying truly with the pain that comes through fiery trials. And we know from chapter 1, verse 7, he's already, he's already made reference to this with the, the genuineness, the tested genuineness of our faith that's more precious than gold though it, that perishes through the, even though it's tested by fire. He, he's, he's not... You know, th he's not talking about the kind of trial where you say, wow, that, that wasn't very fun, but oh well, there's better things to look for in the future. Right? As he talks about this fiery trial, he's talking about the kind of trial that stops you in your tracks. And you say, wow, I, I don't know what to do. This is, this is the fiery trial that happens to it. This is the assertion, the statement of fact about life. You know, some people think that Peter's talking about such a fiery trial that it's the officially sanctioned persecution from the Roman government to kill the Christians. Or that it's the end times type of suffering, the fiery trial from the end times. He, Peter doesn't spell it out because, again, he's already referenced it in chapter 1, but it's the, this is the summary of what we learned. He's not saying, look, there's one thing that's coming that's going to be really hard for you. <laughs> the fiery trial in a generic sense, is, it may happen over and over and over again. The kind of trial that just comes and stops you and makes you look up to God and say, what? What? <laughs> He's real with us about the suffering. But here's where it gets really helpful for us. In letter C in our notes, verse 12, in the assurance that we have. Not just the acknowledgement that, yeah, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. It's going to hurt. But the assurance that we have. What does he say about this fiery trial? Well, first, he says, don't be surprised. 
because it's not something strange. And then second, he says, it's a test. Surprised, of course, means a, a feeling of strangeness, sudden feeling of unexpected wonder, like, what? <laughs> What's happening here, God? Why is this hard thing coming to me? Uh, when our family went on vacation a few weeks ago, one of the places we went, don't judge us, but one of the places we went was a Ripley's, believe it or not. Some of you are saying, oh, come on, why would you go there? Others of you are like, oh, I, I want to go there too. It's the second one that we'd been to. The first time you go, there are a lot of things in there. You go, wow, look at that. Wow, ooh, that's sad. Ow, that looks painful, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that you look at. You go, wow. The second time you go, the things that are repeated, you just kind of look at it like, oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> it's not so strange anymore. It's not, so, it's not such a wonder. That's what Peter's saying. Look, this is not going to be strange, okay? Don't be surprised by this. Uh, something strange is, you know, something that's unfamiliar, something that you've never heard of before. no. It can't be a surprise to us anymore that fiery trials, really difficult, severe suffering is going to happen. Jesus said it repeatedly. The whole New Testament talks about it. Peter's already told us. So it shouldn't be a surprise when a fiery trial happens. Now, why is Peter so concerned that we might be surprised by a fiery trial? Well, because that would reveal some wrong thinking for us, right? And we've already seen through 1 Peter how important it is to be thinking rightly, to be prepared in our mind, but it reveals that wrong thinking. You know, God says there will be trouble. But my favorite TV pastor told me that I can have my best life right now. I can be happy all the time. Oprah told me if I think good thoughts, the universe will return those good thoughts back to me. But who are we going to believe, God or man? What does your experience tell you about how life is going to be? What does the Word of God tell us about what life is going to be like? There will be trials, afflictions, persecutions, sufferings. There's going to be a lot of that stuff going on. There's going to be some good things too. There's going to be happiness and joy also, and there's going to be some moments of peace. But don't be surprised. It shouldn't take us by surprise. Because surprise will lead to disappointment. Oh, I thought God was going to shield me from that. And then surprise, after leading to disappointment, will bring about disenchantment. Well, I guess I don't, I guess I don't have enough faith. I guess I just shouldn't be praying anymore because it's not working. Which then leads to disillusionment. Forget the whole thing. I'm just, I'm, you know, it's not work. God's not working for me. Religion doesn't work for me. That's why Peter doesn't want us to be surprised by a fiery trial. And this is why, partly why, the prosperity gospel is so dangerous to us. It assumes that God only has good things for us. If you'll just believe more, if you'll just give more, better things will happen. God has good for you. But listen, the demons believe very strongly who God is. They know very well who God is, who Jesus is. They get nothing good at all, right? Jesus knew better than any of us who he was and is and who his father is. And he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. So God has not said that he will only ever bring us good things and happiness and flowers, roses, unicorns, and rainbows. <laughs> he says the opposite here. Don't be surprised when suffering comes. Really hard, fiery trials, fiery sufferings. It's not something strange or unknown. In fact, God tells us what it is. He says it's a test. 
Remember, as we talked about in chapter 1, the test that God brings into our life in these trials and sufferings is not so that He can test us to find out what's in us. He already knows, like we talked about at the beginning, it's so that we can find out what's in there. And we're okay with that, right? We're okay with that. Okay, God's testing me to see what's in there. I got it. But why do they have to be so hard? Right? Why do the persecutions, the trials, the afflictions, the everything that happens, why does it have to be so hard? The answer is because the faith that God is building within us is not a flimsy and weak faith, but a powerful and eternal kind of faith. The faith that God's giving us is a faith that's got to last forever. If you're going to build a house of cards, a deck of cards and build a house, the test is going to be, can it withstand... (laughs) right? That's the biggest test that that house of cards is ever going to have to go through. But if you're building an eternal, powerful faith in the all-powerful God, remember it's not the size of your faith, but the size of your God, but that faith, even if it's small, has to be strong. It has to be strong enough to last forever. I saw a video this week of a stress test of a chain that connects an anchor to a ship. And a huge anchor, the ship that depends on that anchor, it has to remain in place so the ship can remain in place. The connection between the ship and the anchor is the chain. That's where all the stress is, right? And so they were testing this chain to make sure that it was going to be able to withstand the pressure of several tons of a ship pulling against the weight of that anchor. So they took this, this chain and they hooked it up to a machine and they were pulling it and pulling it and pulling it to see how much pressure it would take before it broke. It was a 90 millimeter thick chain, which is over three and a half inches thick, the, the, the metal on this chain. And that chain took 778 metric tons of pressure. That's 1.7 million pounds of pressure before that chain snapped. It was amazing to watch it. If you're depending on that chain to hold the ship, it better be able to hold the tons and tons and tons of pressure needed to do that. The test should not be some guy walking up, picking it up, and giving it a tug, right? (laughs) Seems sturdy to me. Let's put it on the ship and hope it holds. No, the test for that chain is going to have to find out, can it withstand the pressures that it's going to be put under? So these trials and sufferings that come and test us, that seem to bring us to our limit, God is building and refining a a pure faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a forever kind of faith. He's not building a weak faith. This has to last forever. He's going to prove it. He's going to refine it. He's going to test it. The test will not be a simple tug. Yeah, seems good enough to me. It's going to be tons and tons of pressure. Now, remember... We're looking at this as some assurance. This is, this is under this point of assurance that we have in this proposition. If this is a test, that means that there is a tester. And as we've talked about over and over, things don't just happen. There is a sovereign tester who designs tests specifically for us. He already knows our limits, though, brother and sister. He's not going to break us. He, he won't exceed those limits for us because he knows us and he loves us. Isn't that a blessed truth that he knows us? He is all goodness, He is all perfection, and He loves us. So the tons of pressure that gets placed on us, all the fire that comes upon us will not break us. It's a testing. It's an intense testing to show the strength of the faith that God is building in His people. It's refining and burning away all that holds us back in our faith, and it's revealing by testing to show what's there, what He's doing within us.
you know, when I was younger, I couldn't withstand the pressure of having a family and working to provide for them and, and all the things that happen with broken down cars and broken down air conditions and a roof that has to be replaced and all the things that I couldn't handle that, right? And God builds us up through life and he prepares us and he strengthens us and it's little by little, we may not notice it all the time, but he's doing it. And when things happen that we are able to, to endure and that he brings us through, we see the results of what he's doing within us. The strong faith that he is building. So that's why there's assurance in these trials. That's why they shouldn't surprise us because that's what God is after. It's the expected truth of living on this earth as God works to change us. He strengthens our faith. It's not strange, it's familiar. And it comes from our great sovereign God who knows us and loves us. So that means we don't, we don't have to wonder, you know, God, where are you during this trial? God, why aren't you working in this trial? What we're learning is constantly to be reminded that we need to embrace the sovereignty and the wisdom and the love of God through everything. That's especially true during fiery trials. And again, as we've said, God never tells us to get rid of something unless he's got something better for us to put in its place. So what do you replace wonder and strangeness and confusion with during fiery trials? Well, that's D in our notes, verse 13. Action, the action that he tells us to do is to rejoice. You replace confusion and worry and wondering what's going on with joy. Rejoice is being full of joy. It's being glad. Now, how is that possible? (laughs) Really? I mean, how is that going to be possible? He says rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. This is going to give us a jolt. That that word share there is the word koinonia. It's the verb form of that noun, koinonia. Rejoice insofar as you koinonia fellowship, share with, have a partnership with Christ and his sufferings, that allows us to rejoice. It brings rejoicing. You know, that's the reason that we have these koinonia groups. We don't call them small groups. They are kind of small groups sometimes. But they're not just a small, it's not just a small group of people getting together and commiserate, commiserate about how hard life is. It's a partnership and a fellowship together of coming close together so that we study together, we pray together, and we serve together in a true kind of fellowship, a koinonia where we come together and we experience together and go through together and work together and love together insofar as we share in the sufferings, the fellow sufferings with Christ himself. That's what we're after in those groups. That's what we pray is happening. That's what we desire. That's what we have as we suffer for Christ We're sharing in his sufferings. Now, we don't suffer to save anybody like Christ did. That's not what we're sharing in. But we're suffering for the Father's purposes just like Jesus did. Jesus was suffering for the Father's purpose of saving us. Now, we're suffering to fulfill the Father's purpose of growing in holiness from ourselves and for one another, which produces glory for him. That's our highest goal. Our highest aim is his glory, right? If that means we've got to suffer, then we will do that with joy. But there's an acknowledgement here that that the greatest joy will come when it's all over, when it's all finished. He says we rejoice now in spirit and truth more than we do physically, right? When we're going through really hard times, we rejoice inwardly, inside. But later we'll we'll become overcome with joy. 
He says, that's what he says in verse 13, rejoice now so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He, he combines some words together here because Jesus is already glorified, right? Amen? He's already glorified. It's a certain fact right now. Not everybody sees it. But when it is revealed, when that happens, we will rejoice and be glad if we've been rejoicing while suffering as Jesus did. The word the words here mean continued joy like we've had all along, but it adds a state of joy where it comes spilling out of our mouths. It's a joy of a celebration time where we're singing and shouting. And one of the commentaries even says that it's accompanied by appropriate body movement. <laughs> that might scare some of us. <laughs> we will get carried away by the great rejoicing when God's glory, when the glory of Jesus is revealed. Right now, we know it's an absolute certain fact, but then everybody will see it and we'll say, we knew it all along, <laughs> right? And we'll be rejoicing. We'll get carried away. We won't be able to control ourselves. Maybe we'll be dancing around like David did. Maybe we'll be falling on our face before him. I know for certain that will happen. <laughs> but it's all because we share with him now in his sufferings and in his joy through those sufferings, knowing what's going to happen in the future. But not if we're suffering wrongly. We know we're going to suffer. We know we're going to have some happy times again. There's, it's not just all bad times and negative and suffering. We know we're going to suffer, and it should not be a surprise. But to suffer rightly, it means not just commiserating through it, but rejoicing through it. That's what Jesus taught us in the Beatitudes. Remember in Matthew 5? Jesus said, blessed are you, truly happy are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, Jesus says. Same words that Peter uses. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is again part of the battle for our minds. Let's not get surprised by fiery trials. They will come, but they're not going to break us. They're strengthening. They're growing. They're refining and they're testing us. So rejoice through them as you share in Christ's sufferings. So the first thing we need to do is accept that proposition, that fiery trials are coming. But he's not talking in generalities. He gets very practical here in number two, verses 14 through 16, where we're reminded that we need to continue the practice. Continue the practice. And I don't know if you were listening fully when Pastor Kyle was praying, but he actually used those words. I'm not even sure he knew that that was going to be the fill in the blank here for this note. But as he prayed, he was praying that we would continue this practice, continue the practice of being in the presence of God. Now, we just read Jesus' words in Matthew 5. We've seen repeatedly through 1 Peter that harsh words will be hurled against us, that bad things are going to happen, right? They did it to Jesus, they're going to do it to us. Physical suffering may come as well as persecution. Words will be the starting point, but this is all for as we suffer in Jesus' name, right? For the name of Jesus. Just as Jesus said, Peter now says again, if you're insulted by the world for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Do you see the paradox there? You're going to be cursed. You're going to be insulted. You're going to be put down for believing and loving and following this Jesus. But in reality, you're blessed. You and I are blessed when that happens. It means happy. It means favored. Again, how can that possibly be? Verse 14, you are blessed 
because the spirit and glory of God rests upon you. How could it be that you're happy when you're insulted or blessed when you're cursed? Because the very spirit of God himself rests upon you. God takes up residence in you. That means he knows us. That means he loves us. What else would we be excited about? How else could we rejoice? Because God knows us. The Holy Spirit is the one who, the, the he, not the it. You know, so often we talk about the Holy Spirit and it. No, it's not it. The Holy Spirit is a he. He is the one who convicts us of sin and who brings regeneration. That's new birth to us. He's the, holy, the one who strengthens us for ministry. He's the transforming agency who causes the hearts of believers to be sanctified for our Savior. Conformed more and more to the glory of the Lord. He's the one that brings the fruit of his presence, the fruit of the Spirit within us. He's the one that does that. You say, well, I don't feel him. I don't feel the Spirit within me. I mean, I know, I, I know Jesus and Jesus knows me. I don't feel the Spirit doing all those things. It's the truth. We cling to it. Do you feel, brother and sister, the earth spinning at a thousand miles an hour right now? No, but it is. It's the truth that changes our life. If the earth wasn't spinning at a thousand miles an hour, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Right, but, the, but it's there, it's true, and it's affecting us and impacting us. The Holy Spirit is there, and He's real and true within us. Even if we don't feel Him, He's there. He's like the manifest glory of God that came, the Shekinah glory that came down upon the tabernacle in, in Exodus 40, and everybody scattered out of there. They, they, they couldn't handle being there. God comes into us and removes anything that shouldn't be there. And sometimes we bring other things in, but he's the one who does that, the Holy Spirit himself living within us. It's like the glory of the presence of God that shined on Moses' face when he met with God. He'd come out and everybody's like, whoa, get away from us, Moses. We can't handle it. Continue the practice of being in God's presence, recognizing his presence, exalting him, glorifying him for his attributes, his his essential characteristics, his nature. His blessing, His glory is on you during suffering. Practice it continually, but especially when suffering for the name of Christ. Practice it now because He's with us now. And it's harder to try to figure things out when when the hard times come. That's when we fall back on what He's already shown us. That's when we fall back on how He's grown us. So we're tracking along with Peter, and we got this so far, but then suddenly we have verse 15. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And you say, what? Why is that there? <laughs> well, as we've seen, we've, we have come to know God, and he has come to know us, and his purpose for us is holiness, which is a, a removal of sin in our life, right? And we've talked about no matter what happens or doesn't happen, that's what God has for us. And so we control our mind, we kindle our heart, we conduct ourselves as good stewards of what he's given us. That's how we live for his glory, not continuing in sin. And so that's how Peter is, is giving us this verse here, this, uh, this sentence, this command, don't do this. As people begin to insult us, as people start killing some of us, the rest of us don't start killing them back. As people start to persecute us and start stealing all of our stuff, taking away our possessions, we don't go do it back to them. We're not murderers. We're not to be suffering as thieves. As people are treating us terribly, doing evil toward us, we don't become evildoers back to them and 
when they start getting into our lives and trying to find out who we are and what we're about and, and all for the sake of persecution, we don't get involved in their lives in that way of, of sticking our nose where it doesn't belong, meddling, being busybodies. Notice the progression here from the most horrendous sin to the seemingly like, who cares, innocuous sin, right? Like murder, yeah, that's bad. Thieving, yeah, that's bad. Evil doing, sure, don't want to do that. Meddling, does that belong in the same sentence? Yeah, that's all sin. And we're not to be known as people of sin. We're to be known as people of holiness and of love. If that's what we're suffering for because of sin, then he's not saying expect any blessing from God. You know, you're not going to get some kind of reward from God because you suffered well after you murdered somebody, right? Or even after meddling. Verse 16, yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. If you're suffering as a Christian, that's different. There is no shame for suffering as a Christian, but it's glory to God. And again, glorifying, internalizing this truth and and chewing on this and meditating on it and, and having it come out of your mouth and out of your actions and your thoughts and your words and your deeds and everything for God's praise. This name Christian here, we use it a lot to describe ourselves. Yes, I'm a Christian. Are you a Christian? It's only used three times in the New Testament. Acts 11, Acts 26, and here you have them in your notes. You can look at them, but in the, originally this wasn't a compliment. Oh, you Christian. It wasn't even a neutral term. It was a put down. Like, you know, when they said Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, the, Jesus the Nazarene. Oh, that guy? That's how they meant it when they said that. that. That's what it means when they say Christian, when they originally, when the, the term was coined. And people may mockingly call you a Christ follower, you Jesus freak in the 90s. You remember that, when that, that went around? People might mockingly call you that, but it's a truth that brings us joy and a blessing, not a cursing, not shame. Do not be ashamed, but glorify God. Even if the entire world comes against you because of your belief in Jesus, because you proclaim Jesus, there is no shame, only glory to God. And Peter's trying to spare us the shame of denying Christ, of being ashamed of him. Remember what he did three times in one night. He says, don't do that. Don't be ashamed when they mock you. The real shame would come at the end if we're ashamed of Jesus now. So Peter says, don't do that. Praise Him through everything. You've got some verses in Revelation, chapters 11 and 15 and 16 and 19. I wish we could go through those, but they're in your notes so that you can get a view of angels and others in heaven singing praises of God, even during great times of judgment, great times of suffering upon the world. They're singing God's praises. You're just, you're right, you're true. That was the right thing to do, God. It's the right thing for Him to do now, but He withholds it in His patience, His mercy, and His love. You've got verses in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians to warn us against being busybodies and meddlers. Peter said, practice this. Keep doing this. We know sufferings will come. It can be all kinds of bad things. We, can know that, we know that there can be fiery trials that come. But prepare and rejoice so that when it comes... We won't fall away because we know God and because He knows us. Number three, verses 17 and 18, the next thing we need to do is we, make, we need to make sure that we keep the perspective. Keep the perspective through all of this. The question might come up, does it really matter how we do it all this? 
I mean, we know that Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Amen? That is absolutely true. So then does it really matter if we obey or disobey? I mean, if we, if we do these things, if we follow these commands, is it really all that important? Jesus is just going to forgive it all. Peter says it's time for judgment to begin with us. With us. What does that mean? Well, it means what it says. Judgment begins at the household of God, and we are the household of God. But how does that square with Romans 8.1 and what we know about Jesus? Because he paid for every one of our sins. There is no condemnation. There is no wrath of God coming upon us. Didn't he pay for all of our sins? He did. He has paid it all. But because he's given us that new life, because he's given us a new mind and a new heart, because he himself dwells within us, because of all of the gifts that he's given us, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, the gifts that he's given to us to serve one another, he expects us to obey. He gives us a lot of commands in the New Testament as believers. Why would he give us commands and say, but it's not really all that important if you don't listen, right? He's not commanding non-Christians to obey all of the one another's in the New Testament. He's not talking to un-Christian, non-Christians to grow in holiness through their life, right? Unbelievers have one thing they need to obey, the gospel, which is to bow, to stop trying to work, to believe and repent, right? When they do, like we did, now they are enabled, as we are, to desire to obey and to be able to obey the commands in the Scriptures, it would be silly to think that God would give us all the commands and then not hold us accountable for whether we did. He's given us gifts. He's given us uh, the stewardship of our life and our time and our money and our energy and all of the, the things that he's given us. And he expects us to do what he's given us to do. What, what happens if we're not faithful to do that? We just get off scot-free? No. Now, we're not going to be judged and sent to hell, praise God, because God knows us. And he knows us, we know him. But there will be a testing of our actions, our words, our thoughts, our deeds at the end. Judgment, Peter says, begins here in God's household. Now, Paul talks about it in Romans 14. Remember in Romans 14, people were dividing up over things, over um, you know, food offered to idols. And they were just picking at each other and they were accusing each other. And you can insert anything in here of, of earthly concerns of conscience. Um, wearing masks and not. Getting a vaccine, not. Homeschooling, going to public school, going to movies. All of those things that cross into meddling. Christians were judging each other on these things. Are you really a Christian because you did that? Because you didn't do that? Because you said this or didn't say that? He says in Romans 14, verse 10, who are you to pass judgment on your brother in those matters of conscience? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That's Paul talking to Christians. Again, he's writing to us believers. He says two verses later, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. There is a judgment of accounting, of a reckoning, of an accountability answer for what you did with what God gave you, what God did for you. Now, we want to convince ourselves, well, that's just going to be all good, right? It's just going to be all 
um, prizes and rewards and look how wonderful I did. But 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, again, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This doesn't square with what I know about God's grace. He's already saved me. And he has, brother and sister. He has and he will. There is nothing that can stop that from happening. But with all the privileges that he's given to us as being sons and daughters, with the Holy Spirit himself dwelling within us, energizing us, enabling us to desire and to do the good things that he's given us to do, with all the wisdom and grace and gifts he's given, what have we done with it? He'll ask that of us in a judgment. In fact, Jesus says we will all give an account for even every idle word we said, any careless word that we said in Matthew 12. What will it look like? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, and you have these verses in your notes, you can study them and make sure that I'm not making this up. (laughs) Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, our works will be tested by God by fire. The foundation for us is Jesus Christ. No one can lay any other foundation than Jesus Christ. But how we build on that foundation will be tested by God. He says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Praise God for that. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. See, we will be saved. We are saved. We're under God's grace and only his grace. There is no judgment of wrath coming upon us. There is no payment of sins. Jesus has paid for all of them. But the only hope that we have of making it through that fire testing is Jesus Christ himself. Right? None of those works that we're trying to do, none of those works that we want to do to glorify Him and honor Him, it's only through Jesus, but the works will be tested, and we will give an account. So Peter warns us of that. Look what he says in verse 17. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? I shudder to think. If we're going to go through only on the basis of Jesus Christ, what will happen to those who don't know Jesus? Or Jesus doesn't know them? Verse 18, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The word scarcely here doesn't mean barely, like Jesus' blood barely pays for us to get in. It fully, completely brings God's uh, uh, approval on us, His love for us. The word means great difficulty. If, the, if we are saved with great difficulty, all that Jesus did, what will become of those who don't have Jesus' blood? Look at all that it cost Jesus, the great difficulty that he endured and that we endure for following him. If we're saved after that, after all of that great difficulty, what will become of those who don't know him and he doesn't know? Keep the perspective, brother and sister. Life is hard, it comes with suffering. How much worse will the suffering be if Jesus says, depart from me, I don't know you? How can we have hope? Because we have Jesus. We have Jesus and, and even more importantly, Jesus has us. 
Keep the eternal perspective. I know God and God knows me. I'm only saved because of Jesus, but I will be saved. I'm saved now and I will be forever. And I will answer for how I used what he gave me, how I responded to what he gave me. But others will have no answer. These verses here can be talking about discipline even in our life right now where God disciplines us, chastens us as sons and daughters. He says it begins now with us. That means we need to be sharing this, doesn't it? We need to be telling people around us. You know, but they only want to hear the good stuff. Well, they can hear the good stuff after we tell them the bad stuff, right? <laughs> the good stuff won't make any difference if they don't know the bad stuff. We have to know that we're sinful to know what we're safe from. So to suffer rightly, we need to accept the proposal. We need to continue the practice, and we need to keep the perspective. Finally, number four, and I know our time is out. We won't spend much time on this because this one is a reminder for us, number four in verse 19, to pursue the profession. The profession. If you prefer our job, if you want to put in that blank just job, but you can put that in there. Uh, we've said before that this is the key verse for First Peter. This is the, in, in one verse, it encapsulates everything that's in First Peter. One commentator said, in this one verse, it summarized the, entire, the teaching of the entire letter. If you could boil it all down to one verse, it would be this one right here. Let those, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. But those who suffer according to God's will, we know that nothing happens outside of God's will. We can't control what happens to us. God is in control of it. So we trust Him. We trust the one who is in control. Nothing happens to us by accident. He's not talking about suffering because of our sin. He's saying suffering according to God's will. If God's bringing it into our life because He's growing us, we accept it. We, we, we suffer according to God's will because we know that He's good. He's powerful. He's sovereign. He loves us. He knows us. He is our faithful creator. To entrust means to set aside for safekeeping like Jesus did. When he died, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's what we do every day if we need to, every hour if we need to remind ourselves I'm entrusting my soul to God. I'm entrusting my soul to my Jesus, my faithful creator, the one who is outside of time, the one who has had no beginning and will have no end. If we didn't trust him, you know, brother and sister, if we didn't trust him and all of this suffering was happening, I, we would have every right to be full of worry and anger and impatience and frustration and, and hopelessness. We would have every right for that. But because we know who God is and because he knows us, we have no excuse for that. We have trust in him. We entrust our souls to him. Not just resigning the fact, okay, well, God's in control and he's going to bring the bad stuff. Entrusting him to do good through it. You have Psalm 31 in your notes. Just read through Psalm 31. Psalm 31, just read it and meditate and just see how the psalmist endures suffering, trusting God. This is called a profession because this is our job, brother and sister. This is what he calls us to be and to do on this earth. As we suffer according to his will, we entrust our souls to him, the faithful creator. It's a full-time job. <laughs> It's a profession that we don't get to quit, and it won't quit until he brings us back. So our application, what do we take from here? What I'd like you to do, brother and sister, is memorize that first blank in your, in your notes there for application. Just memorize 1 Peter 4.19. 
You say, why would I? I you know, I'd rather memorize John 3.16 and, and Romans 8.1 and Romans 8.28 and, and all, you know, all of these other verses. Those are good verses and you should memorize those. Memorize this verse. Let it roll around in your mind and let it, let it permeate down into your heart. It's not one of the most popular verses for people to memorize, but it will help us to understand as we're suffering what we should be doing, what's going on, what God is doing. Next, embrace your faithful creator. Embrace him. He knows you and you know him. Get to know him more. Embrace your faithful creator while growing in holiness for his glory. Growing in holiness. He says, while doing good here in verse 19. Study him. Learn him. Love him. He, he studies you. <laughs> he knows you better than you do. He loves you if you're his son his daughter, if not, again, please stay back. We'll give you a snack. We'll give you a drink, whatever it takes, so we can walk with you through the gospel. Keep doing good for holiness, for God's will, and for his glory. And for that, we look forward for the time when it's going to be revealed. Father, we praise you and thank you, Lord, that you are the true God. You are the living God, the one who's above all time, who's above all matter and space and energy, Lord, the, the one the God who created it, the God who holds it all together. Father, we praise you. We glorify you. Lord, make us better worshipers. Make us better glorifiers of you. God, you deserve that. You're worthy of that. Father, as we suffer, if you call us to suffer according to your will, God, I pray, I pray, Lord, that we would rest in you, that we would trust in you, your sovereignty, your wisdom, your love for us. God, you are so good to us, and you're so good to know us and to love us anyway. Father, the more that we learn about you, the more we love you. I pray that that would be true for all of us. It would be growing in our knowledge of you, our love for you, and the actions that spring forth from that, the words and the thoughts and the deeds. Father, all of this is so that you can be sung to and spoken to and prayed to, that you can be lived for, God, so that others can be brought into this fold to become your sons and daughters. Father, thank you for what you've done in us. We pray for your assistance, your help, your guidance to bring others in. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, for his glory, and in his name's sake we pray. Amen.